we got it. Good morning, y'all. Thank you, Joanna. Um, the halls are decked uh, in my apartment, as you can see behind me. So where this giant tree is, is normally like where my armchair is that I sit and do church from and do Zoom meetings. And that has been replaced by a tree that uh, we accidentally got the wrong size because Rose and I have never shopped for a live tree before. And we were quite shocked at the size of this tree when we actually got it all in done. But it's beautiful, it's festive. And over in the corner there, uh, what you also cannot see is Rose's entire uh, Hanukkah window that we also have set up because my partner Rose is Jewish. So halls are decked, happy Sunday uh, in Advent. If you give me just a moment over here, I'm gonna switch over to my notes uh, and get us started. Um, so this morning as we start, um, I wanna begin with a little bit of a visualization exercise. Um, so you can close your eyes, you can keep them open, um, whatever works best for you. But I want you to imagine um, with me for a moment that you are in an art gallery and you were looking at a painting on the wall in this art gallery. And the painting that you are looking at it's a painting of the Golden Gate Bridge, um, but it's a very artistic, colorful, sort of impressionistic rendering of the Golden Gate Bridge. Uh, and it's a picture uh, rendering of the Golden Gate Bridge at nighttime. And so you have sort of the dark waters portrayed below, lights reflecting off of it. And then you have the big landmark columns of the Golden Gate Bridge growing up going up, but they're accented um, by these strong brushstrokes that have clearly been painted in a way that really brings the orange to life. Um, there are also these broad paint strokes that show, you kind of get the sense that there are cars on the bridge, um, but it's more just like streaks of yellow that represent uh, the headlights in motion. And as you're staring at this painting of the Golden Gate Bridge, the part that stands out the most behind the landmark is also the sky. The sky takes up a large part of this painting. And towards the bottom, towards the horizon, there's these hues of pink and red um, signaling a sunset that stand out with the oranges of the Golden Gate Bridge. But as you move further up, you get into darker hues, maybe blues and blacks swirling around, light blues and yellows. And there's something about the sky of this painting of the Golden Gate Bridge that looks familiar. Um, and we'll get to that familiarity in a second. But the first thing I want us to think about as we sort of pull away from that visualization for a moment and reflect still on that painting that we've imagined is, is the Golden Gate Bridge in that painting real? Is it real? We know that the landmark itself here in San Francisco was real. And we recognize the landmark in the painting. And in that sense, it's real. But in the way that it's artistically rendered in this painting, is it real? I think that's a tricky and unhelpful question for a work of art. And so rather than asking, is it real? I think it might actually be more helpful to ask, what does this work reveal? Um, and with that, we can ask, why do we even have paintings of the Golden Gate Bridge when the physical landmark is still there? 
there are plenty of proportional photographs taken of it that render it in a more accurate way, perhaps. Um, why do we even need paintings? Why do people continue to paint the Golden Gate Bridge? Well, because people are creative. Um, artistic folks make things. But I also think it's because art can help convey and reveal reality in a way that pure data can't. They do different things. There's something about the way that a painting captures some of the experiences of the magic and the delight and the size of witnessing the Golden Gate Bridge at nighttime that a proportional photograph wouldn't. Art portrays differently. And so it's able to reveal differently. It draws us into an experience that may leave an impression on us, um, depending on how much the work of art really speaks to us. And so again, rather than asking, is the representation real? Is it real? We ask, what does this work reveal? Now, when I was describing this painting that we're visualizing in this gallery, I hinted that there was something familiar about the sky in this painting. Now, the painting that I've been describing is actually a real painting. To my knowledge, it's not currently hanging in a gallery, but it is a real painting by artist Aja Trier. And she humorously named this painting, Van Gogh Never Saw the Golden Gate Bridge. Van Gogh's Starry Night is considered one of the most recognizable works of art in the Western world. The way that Aja Trier painted the sky in her Golden Gate Bridge painting very much evokes the style of Starry Night in a recognizable way. The brushstrokes in Aja's painting that evoke Starry Night, the cultural familiarity that would strike us when we see that painting um, would very much impact how we experience and receive that painting for those who are familiar with Starry Night. Now, what I just told you about this painting, I want you to imagine for the gospels in the Christian New Testament. This morning, I wanna invite you a bit into how I approach scripture. The gospel of Mark is like a work of art about Jesus, a written work of art, but still a work of art, a story. When we use the word story, sometimes we can get caught in that very factual scientific binary between real and not real, historical and mythical. Did this really happen? Is this story real? But I think the gospels are a little non-binary. They're works of art that don't neatly fit these categories. They're both and somewhere outside of and in between. So perhaps the more helpful question, just like with our Golden Gate Bridge painting, is not, is this real? But what does this reveal? What is Mark trying to reveal about Jesus with his gospel story? And Mark, as the artistic gospel writer, will have his Van Gogh elements too. He'll include references and details that are culturally familiar and evoke something for his first century Jewish audience that may not be familiar to us. It's like looking at Aja Trier's painting when you've never seen Van Gogh's Starry Night. You're still able to experience it, but there are some layers that are missing in how you'll receive it. Today, 
in the second week of the season of Advent, we're going to look at the beginning verses of the Gospel of Mark. But in doing that, we're also going to revisit a couple of verses from chapter 40 of Isaiah. Um, and they're verses that we looked at earlier this year in our series on the exile. And they're also a part of a tradition that Mark evokes on purpose as he begins his gospel of Jesus. So I encourage you, as you listen to these verses, as you read them, to think of Mark as a painter with words. And together we'll consider what is Mark trying to reveal about Jesus that might be relevant to us today. And so with that, I'm going to hand it over to John and Kim for our morning scripture readings. All right, a reading from Isaiah, chapter 40, verse 3 through 5. A voice cries out, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. Then the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all people shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And from Mark chapter one, verses one through eight, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the son of God, as it is written in the prophet Isaiah, see, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight, John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, the one who's more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Kim and John, for that reading. So last week, Leah kicked off our Advent series, Journey to Joy, a phrase we borrowed from our December book discussion read, Light of the World by Amy Jill Levine. We're looking at what it means to lean into the hopefulness and the expectation of the Advent season in the joy that is meant to accompany Christmas, um, following year that has been and continues to be incredibly difficult for many. Um, we're acknowledging that joy, especially joy in difficult circumstances, requires cultivation. It's something we pursue, it's a journey. And so today, as we consider the Advent journey to joy, we're going to look to the wilderness with John the Baptist. We're going to look at the significance of the wilderness as an Advent symbol. Now, the Gospel of Mark doesn't begin with a pregnancy. It begins with a proclamation. This is very interesting. It doesn't begin with a pregnancy. There's no infancy narrative like Matthew or Luke, the nativity stories that we associate with Christmas. Mark's gospel begins with a proclamation in the wilderness. And so we ask, what is he trying to reveal about Jesus by choosing to start here? 
The beginning of this gospel starts with a person named John, often called John the Baptist. Now, in the Gospel of Luke, John the Baptist is introduced through his parents, Zechariah and Elizabeth, who've had trouble conceiving. We learn about the prophetic circumstances of his birth and how it closely parallels Mary's pregnancy. John and Jesus are born just a few months apart. But here in the Gospel of Mark, we start with John the Baptist already as an adult. He's the one who proclaims the coming of Jesus, but not his birth. He proclaims the start of his public ministry. And Mark sets the scene for all of this with two verses that point to two major Hebrew scriptural traditions. And he draws them close to one another, like swirls of blue and yellow, distinct, but they're starting to make a vivid green. He writes, as it is written in the prophet Isaiah, see, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now Mark says he's quoting Isaiah because that's the primary framework for the meaning of the proclamation. But he's actually quoting two different prophets, Isaiah and Malachi. And the Malachi part is the first half. Malachi is a short prophetic book. It's considered one of what they call the minor prophets. Um, but what matters to us here and for this gospel is that the last two chapters of Malachi prophesy the return of Elijah. Now, some of you may know this history. Leah, I think, has touched on it briefly in the past. But just as a recap, um, Elijah was one of the first major prophets of the Hebrew Bible. He shows up in the books of First and Second Kings. And he challenged the ruling authority of Israel at the time, what he saw as uh, an unjust monarchy and an abandonment of Yahweh for a foreign god. He was sort of an eccentric figure in his appearance. Um, he was famously described as having a garment of hair and wearing a leather belt around his waist. And there was backlash against his prophecies that forced him to flee to the wilderness a couple of times. So there's also an association between Elijah and the wilderness. And Elijah is also famous for disappearing suddenly, not dying, but like he was taken up and away by God. And so Malachi, who came much later, is known in the last two chapters for prophesying the return of Elijah, the return of this original prophet who challenged the ruling authority and made way for God. The verse that our gospel writer is quoting here See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. This is the beginning of Malachi's prophecy about the return of Elijah. In Mark's first century, Jewish audience would recognize that. Now, let's take a look at the second part before we bring it together and see what picture this gospel is painting of John the Baptist and Jesus. The first part is the Malachi allusion to the return of Elijah. The second part, is obviously quoted from the Isaiah section that we read first. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. This is what Mark quotes. Now, you may remember Leah talked earlier this year about this section of the book of Isaiah being composed during exile. Many of the Israelites were forced away from their homeland and taken into captivity in Babylon. And this part of Isaiah prophesies a future hope. 
the return of Yahweh to Yahweh's people and the return of Yahweh's people to their homeland. When Isaiah chapter 40 says to prepare a way in the wilderness for the Lord, to make straight in the desert a highway, it's not just about a path to return from exile. As Lee has mentioned before, a direct path through the desert is a powerful symbol of return, um, but it's likely not the way that they'd actually travel to get home. This highway in the desert is less about their way and more about God's way. It's about prophesying a way for God to directly show up for God's people in the midst of oppressive circumstances, in their case, an exile, for God's glory to shine forth. It's about preparing for that to happen. And I believe that's the image that our gospel writer is evoking here. This image that would be so familiar and really resonate with his audience. So now let's bring it together. What are Mark's Van Gogh elements of his gospel introduction? What picture is he painting here? John the Baptist is like the spirit of Elijah, Mark is saying. This is why he quotes that part of Malachi and why he describes John in verse six as being clothed in camel's hair and wearing a leather belt, just like Elijah was described in 2 Kings. And John is going to prepare to make a way for God to show up for God's people again in the midst of oppressive circumstances, now under the rule of the Roman Empire. This time, God is going to show up as a human person in prophetic ministry. As Jesus, as Emmanuel, God with us. We learn that John prepares by proclaiming this message to people who will listen and that he begins baptizing them as a ritual of repentance and preparation. Right here with these two quoted verses, the gospel writer is painting a picture with the images of his cultural tradition to reveal something about who Jesus is. And this picture is deeply theological and it is deeply political. The very first verse that this is the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the son of God. This is a major introduction. That phrase, good news from the Greek, euangelion, which became the Latin, euangelium. It's where we get the word evangelist or evangelical. But in Jesus's time, that word was used by the Roman empire to make announcements about events or actions that had occurred for the good of the world. But of course, for the good of the world in their eyes meant for the good of the empire. This word, euangelion, good news, was used when the emperor Augustus was born. And one of the terms for an emperor was divi filius, son of God. The emperor was given a semi-divine status. So when Mark writes, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the son of God, this is political and subversive in a way that's often lost on us today. Um, this is a dangerous and powerful claim. A different kind of authority is coming. One that challenges and undermines the imperial powers. But his coming is not proclaimed in the city. It's not proclaimed outside the courts or the temple in seats of power. John the Baptist appears in the wilderness when he proclaims the one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. 
the people go outward all the way from Jerusalem, from the Judean countryside to the wilderness. John proclaims and prepares a way in the wilderness. Christ is proclaimed in the wilderness. There is a theology in the geography here. The wilderness is the place away from ruling powers. For Hagar, it's the place away from unjust and exploitative masters, Abraham and Sarah. For the Israelites, it's away from the Egyptians who enslaved them. For Elijah, it's away from King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. And later for the Israelites, it's away from the Babylonians who held them captive. The wilderness is the place away from ruling powers. But the wilderness is also being away from protection. It's a place of being exposed to the elements and being dependent on God. In the Israelite tradition, the wilderness is where God shows up for people in powerful ways to protect and deliver them, to test them, to instruct them, to make a way for God's people. In the wilderness, God shows up and makes a way out of no way. And this is where Christ is proclaimed, from the wilderness. This is the picture of who Jesus is that Mark is painting for us. The God who shows up to save in the wilderness, at the margins, and becomes God with us. This year, people of faith have sought words and images from their traditions that speak to what this year has been like. Um, when everyday words aren't alone, alone aren't enough, excuse me, um, we look to words and images that hold symbolic power and can help hold and name what we're holding. And in a year marked by so much grief, uh, anxiety, anger, and loneliness, we look to the symbols that can hold it and name it for us. Um, so I've seen a lot more Christian references to the wilderness this year than I ever remember seeing before. The wilderness is also an image and a tradition that's been gaining popularity in certain post-evangelical circles recently as a way to name the experience of deconstructing faith. We could say that the wilderness is in right now. It's having a moment. But in looking to this imagery for wisdom in this time, I think it's also really important to name that this has been a significant and life-giving tradition for some folks for a long time. And if we want to learn well about what it might mean for us today, that Christ was proclaimed in the wilderness, then that wisdom is an important place to start. In 1993, uh, Dolores Williams published a book that became one of the early foundational books for womanist theology, theology that centers the perspectives and experiences and theological wisdom of black women. It was called Sisters in the Wilderness. And one of the things that Dr. Williams writes about is how there is a strong African-American Christian wilderness tradition that goes back to the experience of enslavement. She writes about how enslaved people took this biblical wilderness tradition and had their own positive life-giving view of it. Wilderness is, in a literal sense, 
the land you wander out to when you can, away from the oppressive forces surrounding your life. And Jesus meets you there. And he gives you spiritual renewal and strength. Dr. Williams shares lyrics from a spiritual that circulated at that time. And I'll share just some of what the words say. It says, if you want to find Jesus, go in the wilderness, go in the wilderness, go in the wilderness. Morning brother, go in the wilderness. Afflicted sister, go in the wilderness. Jesus is waiting to meet you in the wilderness. Go in the wilderness, go in the wilderness. And this wilderness tradition has continued even after the abolition of slavery as a way to name the experience of confronting and making it through in isolating an oppressive reality with the help of Jesus. The wilderness is not just a physical place. It's also a state of being. And in those wilderness moments, when you call on Jesus, Jesus meets you in your place of need and helps you make a way out of no way. Like the verse in Isaiah says, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. As we turn back to our passage from Mark, I want us to consider what can we learn from this wilderness wisdom during Advent without appropriating or diminishing the important specific context that it comes from? Here are a couple things I think that stand out to me. The first is that the wilderness is a place to journey through, not a place to conquer. Again, the wilderness is a place to journey through, not a place to conquer. Dr. Williams writes about how the way Christians, especially white Christians and those influenced by white Christian culture, think of the way they think about the wilderness today is influenced by a settler mentality sometimes. The wilderness is viewed as something frightening and outside of the control of human willpower and technology. And so it must be conquered and subdued and settled. Um, and this mentality continues in the way we can tend to see wilderness places as frightening, or maybe we react by overly romanticizing places. Um, but either way, often seeing the wilderness as an object separate from us. I know that for me growing up in Southern Arizona and the Sonoran Desert, uh, I often used to think that way. I would see these vast expanses of desert outside of the city going for miles and miles, exposed to extreme heat, no water in sight. I would think of the sparse spiky plants and the poisonous snakes and the scorpions and wonder what it would be like to wander out there. And if that's what the Israelites might've experienced in their desert wilderness. But indigenous perspectives and developing a greater familiarity with the land um, has slowly shifted my perspective. And that's also what Dolores Williams points out. The people who were enslaved were still in a different relationship with the wilderness because of their indigenous West African spiritual roots. The wilderness was a place to journey through, not a place to conquer. And I think this also applies in the more metaphorical sense of the wilderness. When you feel like you're in a wilderness place, mentally, spiritually, in your circumstances, there's that 
white Western idea, I think, often from a place of privilege to just conquer the problem, conquer that wilderness moment, figure out a solution, resolve it quickly, do it. Um, this year, maybe it's been something like, we're sheltering in place, so I'm going to become an expert homesteader and make a bunch of homemade sourdough bread. I'm going to come up with the perfect homeschooling scheduling system. I'm going to prove myself and continue my pre-COVID momentum in this work from home environment. I'm gonna go protest as a part of Black Lives Matter and it will defund the police this year. If we can just get a vaccine, everything will go back to normal. These are human responses. Um, I've certainly felt some of them and others too this year. Um, but as many marginalized folks know, conquering is often not the way to get through and to get to joy. A different relationship to the wilderness is required. Um, that was the first thing. The wilderness is a place to journey through, not a place to conquer. Um, and the second and final thing that I think for today we can learn from this wilderness wisdom is that Christ was proclaimed in the wilderness and the living Christ continues to meet people and communities in the wilderness. Again, Christ was proclaimed in the wilderness and the living Christ continues to meet people and communities in the wilderness. Now, maybe you don't relate as strongly to this language of the living Christ or encountering Jesus in this way, Maybe for you, it's more like the spirit or the divine that surpasses understanding, and that's okay. Um, I'm using the language of Jesus or the Christ here to honor the Jesus-centered language of the womanist tradition that Dolores Williams shares, um, and also to point to the specificity of Advent, traditionally a season in preparation for the coming of Christ. The living Christ continues to meet people and communities in the wilderness. And so that means that in the journey to joy, God also journeys to us and meets us in the wilderness places. Last week, Leah shared a step, so to speak, uh, in the journey to joy of this Advent season, possible starting place for us in this time. She encouraged people to look up from within the places of lament and longing. And this week on the journey to joy, the Advent proclamation in the wilderness encourages us to listen out. Listen out with your ears, your eyes, your touch to where Christ is showing up in places of wilderness. The more common expression might be listen out, but I'm saying listen out, outwards, because the wilderness places are often the places on the margins. The people who go to hear John the Baptist, they go out from Jerusalem from the center of political and religious power. They go even out from their homes in the perimeters, the countryside. They go to the edges where the wilderness is. Geographic margins. That's where John is preparing the way and where Christ is proclaimed. But the wilderness is also in the political margins, the economic margins, and the margins of physical and mental well-being. And God challenges that very marginality by showing up there and proclaiming those spaces as the divine center. That's not to say that we're not all probably experiencing some of the wilderness right now. This has been a really hard year, um, socially, relationally, 
politically, economically, um, the isolation and anxiety and despair of this year has cast a wide net. And it can be especially hard to face that moving into the holiday season. Um, I know many of us are facing difficult choices about if or how to gather for Christmas with loved ones. Um, and I know for me, there was something about this week that was so discouraging um, to know that we're beyond the point of California's tier system and we need to be at a level of shutdown similar to where we were in April. Um, that shutdown is now being measured in terms of ICU capacity. And there has still yet to be more federal economic relief for folks. Um, I'm grateful that our governmental leaders are doing some of what's necessary, but it, it's still hard. Um, and so there's something about the symbolism of the wilderness that resonates pretty broadly right now. And what I'm saying is, wherever you feel the wilderness places, let it draw you into solidarity uh, with others who are in the wilderness, perhaps in ways different than you. Listen out. Listen out for where God is showing up there and how you might show up for folks there too. Mark's gospel doesn't begin with a pregnancy. It begins with a proclamation in the wilderness. He paints a powerful, subversive, hopeful picture of what that means for us. In a season where it can be hard to find joy this year and to lean into the hopefulness of Christmas, we are reminded that the proclamation doesn't come to us in places where we're already happy and comfortable, where we're already joyous. The proclamation comes to us in the wilderness. And so for all who feel like they're in the wilderness right now, know that that experience is not separate from Advent and Christmas. It's a part of it. There's room for it. And Christ is proclaimed and present there.